Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Donna, welcome to the Arachain podcast. I know we've been talking about doing this for uh, quite a while now, so it's fantastic to finally have you along here. Perhaps just to uh, start the conversation, let us know what's happening in your professional life at the moment. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Uh, in my professional life at the moment, I'm the Managing Director of the Adesis Institute, uh, which is a California-based institute that works predominantly with uh, founders and family organisations uh, that are going through a lot of change, a lot of growth. Uh, and then the other client base that we work with is more corporate but at the aging phase where they need to rejuvenate get a little bit of that innovation back that some of those founder-led businesses uh, have and I've got a broad range of people that I uh, that I engage with that makes it quite exciting oh good and um, I understand uh, Adesis is uh, the actual surname of uh, somebody who's sort of uh, championed this space is that correct yeah it's the surname of Dr. Ishak Adesis um, an interesting fellow out of out of uh, Macedonia originally, but uh, a, a U.S. native. Now, really interesting guy. I think he's up to his twenty sixth honorary doctorate. Eighty three years old. Ten times the energy I have. Uh, I deal with him quite uh, quite regularly, and he he sort of started as a, a professor nearly fifty years ago, working with organisations, and just started to find there were some commonalities happening and that led him to develop what he describes as the organizational life cycle model and from that he then uh, yeah started building some models of how to institutionalize um, change and uh, an improvement into an organization so quite a quite an interesting fellow okay and uh, and so your association association with him is that for you know this region or is that globally or um, how does that work yeah, so it's it's the Australian region, but I still participate in the global executive. So I'm I'm part of uh, the executive team that looks at a range of different things. But for the people that I work with, it's Australian based. Although I have spent some time working uh, in the US and Mexico, and did some stuff in uh, Europe, Slovenia, Italy, those kinds of places. Being a global organisation, you get some really great insights and opportunities to work with working in other regions and whilst the language is different the culture is different the underlying organizational challenges are exactly the same which is uh which is interesting yeah and uh and so what talk us through some of the different types of uh, engagements that you have with businesses then yeah good good question the most common one let's say on the founder side or the family side is where they've sort of had enough. Uh, they either want some freedom from the business. They want to do other things. They've tried lots of different things. They keep getting dragged into the, into the operations and they're just finding it difficult to get that freedom. And so when they see the organizational life cycle model that normalizes some of the stuff, it, it often, it often resonates. The, 
the other part of the founder or the family side of the life cycle is often, we call it the go-go stage. They've expanded too quick, uh, gone into too many different things, a whole lot of operational problems. They've tried a range of things, probably getting into operational improvements, Kaizen, Six Sigma, they've tried cultural stuff, they've tried staff engagement, all these different things and, and, and some things haven't worked and, and then they, they seek something new. And then on the, uh, on the corporate side, more the aging side, generally it's, it's often a CEO or a COO that's got a little bit of entrepreneurial flair that's trying to rejuvenate the organisation, get some uh, more innovation uh, better, better ability to deal with competitors that see some of this concept and say, okay, well, actually, the manifestation is that we're not innovative enough and, and too inflexible, but it's actually a life cycle location challenge that if you solve that, you can go back. So they're the, they're the three broad, broad engagements. Okay, well, uh, I'm keen to uh, understand, uh, obviously, a lot more than that, but... Uh... You're a, you're, I was just looking at the year that you graduated high school. You're a far younger chap than I am. Uh, and so uh, I'm really interested to see how your career's unfolded to lead towards this part. So why don't we just go back um, and tell, yeah. where, tell us where it all began. Where, where were you born? So I was born actually in South Africa, came out when I was four to Australia. My father's uh, an Australian, so I don't, um, not many people actually know that. Grew up in Sydney. Came to, came to Brisbane and uh, we came to Chapel Hill on that side of town, went to school at uh, Brisbane Boys College, BBC, then went to university at UQ and during that time I got a lucky break where my father backed me into a little home improvements business that ran around doing uh, aluminium cladding and guttering and roofing and all those kinds of things. His accountant had this business. Right. And while I was at university and working as a burger engineer at McDonald's, my father, for whatever reason, saw something there and said, well, could be a, it was a very small business, right, at that point, one person running around. Right. I thought this would be a good learning exercise. And I just, I took that good fortune and faith and, and worked my absolute uh, backside off. I think when we bought it, revenue was 250000 Next year was a million 1.63 and I sold it at about 8 million revenue about five or six years later and sort of uh, started a new business that took some of the learnings from that business but applied some technology to it. So that business, after a while, I realised every time there was a hailstorm, a cyclone, a flood, all through Queensland, there was a lot of work Yep. to go off and, and do. So I then worked for insurers, but then started to see that there was a better way. So the new business then made a online platform for managing insurance claims. So like prior to, I still remember getting faxes of, of new claims and then built that up and just got onto a bit of a roll and, and expanded into New Zealand, bought a company into the UK, did some acquisitions, brought on first angel investment, then private equity, then some VC, then listed, then, then did the stereotypical entrepreneurial thing and went a step too far with, a, with an acquisition. Because I had bought, I didn't know the life cycle then, I'd bought companies that had been incredibly successful in the well, the companies were underperforming, but we bought them and then we turned them around, right? 
And then I went and bought a much larger competitor, not realizing that the companies I had bought were aligned with my life cycle location. Mm-hmm. What I then bought was an aging organization that was totally different, right? We call it the recrimination phase. And it, it, it was like a cancer and it came through and it, it killed a whole lot of things. And like you often do once you've stretched too far, by that time we're listed and we then sold off different parts of the business. I stepped off the board. Uh, they sold off more of the assets. You go away and you lick your wounds for a little while. And about three years prior, I'd found the work of, of Dr. Ishak Adesis. Um, and they weren't able, I'd reached out to the Institute, but they weren't able, they didn't have the resource at that point in time to, to assist. And so once all of this happened, I found this content. I flew off to the US, spent time with him and, and the team and spent time in Mexico and different parts of the world and, and just really, uh, really loved it. And, and it's, it's what I'm able to bring to clients today is it's not just a theoretical sort of framework, having built and bought and, and been the CEO of and COO of and executive directors and all of these kinds of things of, of actual businesses applying and, and having these issues manifest. Um, I sort of bring a real world um, experience to, uh, to clients. And look, there were some interesting and challenging times, but I wouldn't swap them at all now because without those experiences, and until, until you've bought a company and you haven't been able to turn it around because you had the wrong approach because you didn't know where it was in the life cycle and you've presided over that kind of screw up. You can read all the books around different things, but until you've actually experienced that and what, you know, culture actually means and the fact that there are different cultures and how do you integrate cultures and the fact that when you hire people, you really should be having a life cycle understanding of who you're hiring and why and all these things until you've experienced that as a, it's a wee bit theoretical, so so yes, so, that's that's the arc. So the your business you were referring to was Stream Group, correct? Correct. So Stream is what I set up in '08 after selling ReadyBuild, yeah. and what it effectively did it managed insurance claims, but it used a technology back end to automate it. So we had a supply chain that came in electronically. We video did photos. We were the first to really start doing that uh, in the industry. And so instead of things taking weeks and months, you could really start to get down into hours, days, and and, you know, and, it, it, uh, and, and for cyclones and stuff, when you had a geographical footprint in an area that you normally got three, I don't know, three claims a week, you know, then a cyclone comes in and you've got 8,000 to deal with in a short period of time, you need some technology enablers to sort of do that. And and the, the problem is that the industry is very conservative, very low on technology, at least at that point. And the incumbents, the competitors, they had such large businesses with easy cash flows, there's, there's that, that drove sort of a lack of innovation. So when someone like myself comes uh, along with, with higher processing, great, Great growth, great great revenue, but um, didn't uh, didn't get a few things right, and right. ended so, up selling off. They, they, we sold off off uh, different parts, closed down a number. Had to the acquisition. I sort of tell people I bought one company for about four hundred fifty thousand that spat out about thirty million in cash, 
in five years and then got sold for up to about 20 million. But I also bought a $50 million business that had to be placed in liquidation 20 months later. So have have had both sides. <laughs> and so what was it in that situation, I, I, if I understand correctly, so you were looking for some help and you identified a Deezus. Um, how, did, how did his work appear on your radar originally? <laughs> it was actually my ex-sister-in-law whose neighbour had read a book called The Ideal Executive and Why You Can't Be One. The problem with founders, especially young founders, is there's, there's a lot of conflict in <clears throat> those fast-growing businesses and, and we have a tendency to believe it's a people, it's the other person. Right. And what, what that book taught me was actually there are, there are different styles and different roles and you can't be at any point in time perfect in all the roles. We call them the producing, administrating, entrepreneuring and integrating roles, the four roles of management. You can't be perfect in all four of them. You actually need a complementary team. You need your producers, your administrators, your entrepreneurs and your integrators. The problem is they're in conflict, those styles, quite often. Mm-hmm. And I didn't and, and, and the only way to get around that conflict is we talk about mutual trust and respect can take people that have big differences uh, but as long as there's trust and respect at the core you can really harness those differences the problem is for young founders or founders in general especially that high e energy trust and respect is something that sometimes doesn't go come naturally and so when I read that book I was like oh wow okay there's actually me here that needs to take accountability that the recipe that I have for harnessing inevitable conflict is wrong. And then I read Mastering Change, which was another book by Ishak. And it really normalised, you know, effectively that change is what creates problems and opportunities that we need to manage. And when we manage, we create more change. And so companies that are really good at managing that change loop, companies, countries, relationships, teams, doesn't really matter. If you're really good at identifying problems and opportunities that come from change, that's the secret to success. And then finally, there is some predictable change. When I then read Corporate Life Cycles that that he wrote, that actually some of this change is predictable. The problems and therefore opportunities are predictable. If you can know the road ahead, you can actually drive faster. And whilst leadership is incredibly important and developing leadership skills, up until that point, especially being part of CEO groups, I've been force fed that leadership was everything, right? How you lead, vision and mission, all of that, when actually there's actually a life cycle connotation. And so... Um, those were the sort of three points that sort of triangulated for me. And so at the time, you reached out and said, I need some help, but they were unable to have the resources to support you. And so post your exit from Stream, you were so attracted to the philosophies and the, the methodologies that you decide, well, I might become their resource in Australia. Sort of. It was... I had bought every book, every video, listened to every podcast and re-engineered my own thing. And I'm quite active in investing circles, whether it's early stage or, or kind of thing. And, and, and in the back of my mind, it was, well, armed with this stuff, if I could know it properly, I could then work with others on an investing aspect. So then 
you know, when you're, when you're rejigging your life, um, sometimes it's good to have a change of environment. So I jumped on an aeroplane, off, uh, off we went, and then it, it sort of just morphed that I just loved it more and more. And then I started working with people on it. And when, when you have, you know, someone burst into tears because things have, have become so clear for them and we've solved problems that they've been struggling with for 20 years, um, they just didn't know how to do it and we gave them the process. It's incredibly rewarding. And so it sort of, I then fell into, well, hang on, I, I enjoy it. I'll do the investing thing as well and uh, do some work with some, with some clients. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, obviously without breaching any confidentiality, it'd be interesting for you to give uh, you know, a couple of examples of perhaps the circumstance in which you become engaged, what the, you know, the uh, immediate issue was and, and perhaps uh, use it as a way of demonstrating these models. Yeah, sure. Well, so, so normally the, the entry point to how I've been engaged, generally 90% of the time is when I've done a presentation somewhere, a CEO group, an investment forum, whatever it, whatever it might be. And in a particular case study, the business is 35 years old. Um, they, they've been through a slew of sort of general manager, COO types, but inevitably conflict builds up between them and the founder and <clears throat> the relationship goes bang, right? Mm -hmm. And it's all too common what, what happens the first time a founder decides I want to break what normally happens is they say, okay, it's time to appoint the CEO or it's time to appoint the GM. It's a bit like at a certain part of an entrepreneur's journey. It's, it's time to buy the Porsche or the Ferrari. Like it's, it's similar thing, right? It's time to appoint the CEO, CEO or COO. And nine times out of 10, it, it, it lasts a very short period of time, right? Sometimes even months, sometimes a few years until the relationship uh, falls apart and the reason is that a founder has built a their business or a founding team has built a business that is like a well-tailored suit to them mm. it suits them perfectly how they like to operate who they like to work with who they like having work for them the kinds of products the kinds of process it's an expression of them right people like working with either people that we like or people like us that's tends to what happened and so you get this business that is is incredibly tailored to one or a couple of founders and then they say well i'm tired now i'm or i, I want some i want some uh freedom or something's gone bang i finally got to get someone in and they try and squeeze some other poor bugger into their suit and it doesn't it doesn't fit the sequence is wrong the right sequence and we in our model we say people are last which often upsets uh, some parts of the community, but there's a nuance. All we're saying is people are last in the sequence of steps. People are the most important asset you will ever have, right? But people quite often are a product of their environment. And so where we start is actually, why don't we get really good people and make sure that the environment is correct? And so that when a CEO, or when a founder wants to step back a little bit and start to get some freedom and is thinking about it's time to appoint the CEO or GM, we actually start at, 
at somewhere that's actually quite boring. Uh, and, and in this case study, it's exactly where we started. We start first with, well, hang on, we've got to make a suit that instead of a genius being required to run it, we can actually get some ordinary people to achieve extraordinary results. And that starts with what we call the managerial processes, not operating processes, not sales process, not any of that. It's the managerial process. Like, how do we identify problems in this place? How do we identify opportunities? How do we prioritize? How do we align? How do we make good decisions? How do we implement? Because in a lot of founder organizations, it's, that is based on the founder driving it. They see a whole lot of problems. They see a whole lot of opportunities, right? What do, what do meetings look like? Well, we call a meeting. We come in. This is the problem. This is what I think we should do about it. Some founders get a little bit of input, but, you know, it's, it's, it's the founder driving that energy. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we actually go in to say, well, hang on, we need to systemize this. So we teach them, and it, and it can take a few months, how to systemically identify problems and opportunities while still keeping conflict constructive. Because it's often a problem. If you bring a team of people together, all with different styles and interests and values and whatever, and say, right, let's talk about all the problems of this place, <laughs> goes bang. No, no, we can systemically teach a process of how to do that. Then once we can do that, how do we prioritise, right? How do we then make great decisions that do get implemented? And then how do we drive implementation and get accountability? And so we, we start showing how to systemically do that. And that way the founder, a bit like a salami, can start slicing off things. The worst thing a business can do is lose its founder prematurely, right? Because all that entrepreneurialism, all that, all that future insight disappears. But at the same time, if we don't transition effectively, things can take a long period of time. And so by helping them set up those managerial processes that often founders, they find that uncomfortable, right? Founders like flexibility. They don't like some of the, the process stuff. So we need to bring that in. Then once we have that, the business has to sort of grow up a little bit and it has to sort of come together and get a vision and mission that can start to come from the bottom up rather than being led from top down. And again, we have some processes to do that. And then the third step is that structure will actually achieve strategy. Structure achieves mission and vision. And what we then do is, all right, we've got our managerial process humming away. The team's getting good at identifying and solving problems faster than they did before. Excellent. We've come together and uh, more as a team, we've looked at um, the vision and mission for this business going forward. And then we sort of look at the structure. and, And the way we sort of see structure is that, yes, it's roles and responsibilities. It's resources. But it's also authorities. Quite often, especially in founder-led businesses, the authorities haven't been cascaded yet. And you've got, to be, you've got to be very careful that you don't delegate too quickly because the system doesn't have all the systems and process in place to handle full delegation yet. So we have to sort of, we have to handle that. Then another structural element is reward systems, right? Reward systems drive behavior. And then finally, information systems to sort of track. And so by then saying, okay, well, for the vision and mission now, here's the, here's the roles and responsibilities, 
the profit centers, service centers, cost centers. These are the authority systems that we're now cascading down, the reward systems to drive the right behavior, and then finally information systems. That way, when we go to the people conversation, right, we've now got to get the right people in the right role. Very rarely is it a CEO at that first step. It's often more operations. Then we start handing over other things. And so we can then get, we can find someone that is actually perfectly tailored for the structure, roles, responsibilities, authority, rewards, info, for a mission and vision that's actually clear that everybody understands, it's not just in the head of the founder, underpinned by these managerial processes that without a genius founder around, the system is constantly identifying problems, capitalizing on opportunities. And so when you get those ingredients in alignment, and so with this particular case study for a, a decade or more, I've had a, a, a revolving door of CEO, CFO, general managers. But the problem was that he was trying to squeeze them all into his suit. Conflict would occur. Whereas what we did is we, we did those ingredients in sequence. We then started cutting up those different things. We found that we could put some of the people in the existing role uh, what I tend to do is work in partnership with the founder to help them fill those roles. And now suddenly they're paying golf once a week for half a day that they never got to do before. They're getting to spend more time with their, with their family. Revenue's up 15% despite COVID and profitability has nearly doubled. Uh, I didn't work directly on any of those things, but by giving them the mechanism and the process as a team to identify all of those problems and opportunities and to come together and create a vision and mission to sort of broadly energize the business and a structure that would achieve it, that's how we got the best out of the people, whereas often it starts from the, from the people side. And so the founder now has some choice, right? Uh, they're going to look at, they might spend more time in the business, more time with the family, more time wherever else. But what we often find with founders is that when they feel they have no choice, they get quite frustrated and that manifests in the family and in the business. And so that's where I was able to, to help them get that, that sequence in, in place. Okay. So um, where is it sounds like? often your engagement is once the relationship is blown up. The preferable um, engagement would be to set the, the foundation prior to making the hire. Yeah. Humans are funny though, right? <clears throat> You're right. And I'd say in 10% of the cases, I, I speak to someone, I share some, and they say, oh, I'd like to be proactive and get on the front foot. I must admit, normally what happens, we present ideas, things blow up and then they go, oh, hang on. I, re <laughs> I remember there was a conversation about that. But yes, I, would, I, I am trying to work on my communication, I must admit, to help people be more proactive rather than reactive. And so in an ideal circumstance then, uh, founder, at what point, you said, you know, the founder started to get a bit tired, right? Um, or perhaps they've, re they've coming to realisation that, you know, working 70 hours a week and not seeing their kids grow up is not perhaps uh, the lifestyle choice that they think, truly yeah. want. So at, at, at what's typically the trigger point uh, for the founder to say, 
okay, I'm ready now to start to invest. And the other yeah. thing that came to me while you were talking, you know, there's a bit of a cliche in business that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? But, you know, uh, I'd be interested in your opinion on that statement. Uh, as well, I'll take, I'll take the first one. Um, normally the founder is tired, not just because they're tired. Those founders and, and family businesses have a lot of energy. It's, it's they're tired of the manifestation. So normally conflict is becoming more and more destructive. High staff turnover. Another year that I haven't achieved my strategic goals. Mm. Things are moving slower than they ever did before. I used to be able to get stuff done. Now this thing, like that's what's making them tired. And when they see some of these things, that's that's opens up the conversation. Now, I... I the, the the majority of them, the response is a human, a people response. So we go to the people first. Okay, I'm going to put in a GM, a COO, HR, but we just find nine times out of 10, it's it's something to do somewhere else. That's not to say that we aren't under-resourced, but it's a, it's a different issue. Now, what I hope to try and do is just, um, you know, communicate, A, that is normal, and B, if you're proactive... Again, a lot of these things are normal in the phase of the life cycle if you're proactive. Now, in terms of culture eating strategy for breakfast, absolutely. The problem I find is that they rarely tell you how to, the how, right? Mm. The what, you go online and pretty well most people's what is the same. There's really nothing new under the sun. Where I like Adesis is it really differentiates and it gives you the how. And for culture, again, the problem is depending on where you are in the life cycle will depend on some normal and abnormal cultural manifestations. And then depending on where you're on the life cycle, how you treat those cultural manifestations is different. And so that's, you're right. It's just that in my experience and with the circles I've gone, they don't give you a, <laughs> they just don't give you a playbook on that on that how they just say right culture eat strategy for breakfast and for me the way we break down culture is culture is often a manifestation it is the outcome of a range of ingredients one of the big ones is managerial process i work have worked with a lot of cultures that have highly technical great people right but the problem is when they come together to identify a problem they're lacking something systemic to harness them. Or some cultures, even identifying a problem, you are deemed to have caused the problem. So guess what? Nobody identifies problems. Now, how do you treat that culture is different. So, you know, the, the culture each strategy for breakfast is a bit like the whole idea of, I think, where we focus on structure and the, the silly example I sort of use there uh, is that, uh, have you seen on Netflix, the Michael Jordan? Yep. So the, the core message there is a guy that's very passionate, right? High value set, practiced a lot, vision and mission, high visualization, went through the dark times. And there's a, there's a real message there. But if he was born, I don't know, 50 years ago without a leg and four foot two, I really don't care how strong his vision and mission is. He didn't. He wouldn't have the structure yeah. to achieve what he wanted to achieve. Mm -hmm. And too often in business, we're we, we're told about culture as this sort of almost aspirational 
kind of thing that we've got to work towards or, or even strategy. But where we try and get people to have a look is, well, hang on, do you have the structure to achieve it? And the saying we use is you cannot make a submarine fly by appointing a pilot to look through the periscope. And, and often what happens when we look at the strategic direction we want to go in or we decide what kind of culture we want or we're going to develop, well, well, hang on, what is your current structure? If your current structure is a submarine and you've got, you know, submariners for crew, well, if your mission and, and strategy is to sort of explore the ocean, perfect. If it's to fly over a mountain, you've got a problem. Mm. And so the correct sequence is we've actually got to align those, those ingredients. And that's where we're, that, that's where Adesis as a methodology and there's a lot of stuff online about it is quite good because it just, it systematizes the how. There's no opaqueness and ambiguity. It is a method, right? First, do this. Second, do this, right? And, and that's why I like it. Now, if you then put leadership development in with that as well, that's when we see super results. When environment and leadership skills and those kinds of things, but I have seen in cultures and myself, I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on consultants. If you develop someone's leadership skills, but the environment is still triggering bad reactions or bad behaviours, you're going to have a challenge. So you sort of want to do both. It's very rarely when you're in a a position of high conflict as a team and you're trying to challenge an issue that someone says, oh, hang on, I'm going to remember the leadership coaching I did three years ago and I'm going to pause, I'm going to connect and I'm going to respond differently. No, no. When we get pushed in the ribs and pushed into a corner, we default to our our normal behaviour sometimes. And so what we're really talking about doing is how do we stop those triggers in the first place? One of them is culture. One of them is structure, all of those, and then overlay leadership. Mm. Yeah. I, I, that's fascinating. A few uh, points that came out of that for me, uh, you know, I've always sort of thought culture is strategy for breakfast. Well, the strategy develop determines the type of culture uh, often. And so it's uh, you can't have really it, it needs to be in balance to be successful. Uh, and then the thing that you point to Michael Jordan and um, uh, it'd be fair to say that, you know, he was a bit of an asshole, right? You know, he was very, very tough and it was my way or the highway and, uh, you know, he didn't suffer any fools. And so the culture that he engendered was, uh, um, I wouldn't say he was a narcissist, but he was certainly, um, uh, uh, he was very direct to the point of being yeah. pretty pretty obnoxious, right? And it's interesting because uh, I was running one of my champions forums last week and we had six CEOs in there and one of them was talking about um, how do I make my business truly succeed to its full potential whilst not being an asshole? <laughs> no, you make, you, you make a number of really, really good points. I would say that some strategic planning approaches take culture into consideration. I've just seen a lot that, you know, what normally happens, the two-day strategic offsite where we take people out of the culture, out of their environment, we try and build some teamwork, some skills, we look at the future, we make all of these commitments to each other, we get some energy, and then Monday morning we're back in that in that same stuff, right? And that's one of the things that we, we break. Now, if you have a strategic planning process that does deal with that effectively, great. 
and that's really what we're uh, you know, what we're about. And, and in terms of that CEO, yeah, I mean, you've got a culture can quite often be a manifestation of that life cycle. But ultimately, the way I would define a business being the best that it can be, if you think of that change loop of change problems and opportunities that you need to manage, well, being the best you can be is is getting proactive on that change loop. Now, some some environments are more aggressive than others, but you can make decisions on how you traverse that change loop and how you treat people and the culture that you want to engender but as long as at the end of the day if you can solve problems and capitalize on opportunities faster than your competitors you know that's how you become the market leader and the problem of the world that we're living in at the moment is that change is rapidly increasing which then means problems and opportunities are increasing and therefore only those that can traverse that loop fastest are going to to win and um yeah, you can then you can then choose the culture that you you have around that if you're if you're systemic about it. And it's uh, an interesting point too. I mean, do you think that uh, you know as we move into COVID normal or whatever you want to call it, and uh, and certainly you know pace of business and and the challenges that businesses are facing is substantively different in some respects. But fundamentally, do you believe that there's much change in terms of the the philosophy and the methodologies that you're purporting um or is it still i mean fundamentally it's still business it's still about uh the same values just uh the landscape is slightly uh, altered yeah the, met- the methodology certainly evolving in that a lot more of it's being done online so to speak but you know it goes back all the way back to charles darwin right it's not the strongest that will survive but those that are most adaptive to change and so that hasn't really changed. It's just the kinds of things our, our clients are having to react to is changing, right? The speed at which they need to react to it is speeding up and therefore how they do it is having to change. And so, again, it, it comes back to organisations, well, teams, divisions, organisations, like COVID to me, all it is, is, is this big change bomb. Mm-hmm. A whole series of changes created problems and opportunities that we needed to manage. And there are some organisations that had that already inbuilt ability to go, oh, there's a problem, solve. Oh, there's an opportunity, solve. And then there were organisations that just didn't have that, right? And they've stayed. then because what happens, opportunities that you don't capitalise on become problems. Problems that you don't address become crises and crises kill companies. And if your your opportunity, right, <clears throat> sorry, your, your problem is your competitor's opportunity to solve. And so what we're just really finding is that the core underneath stuff is not changing. It's just how we sort of go about it. And so in the, you know, five years ago, we'd have two days off site and then we'd go and do some different things. Now, first session's half a day. Everyone's online, much prefer. We start unpacking all of the things, start embedding the processes. We move to collaborative mission and vision a lot quicker because we have to sort of get some things aligned. We start looking at structure in parallel and chopping. Like in, in years gone by, you would have more time to go and do that, whereas now we just don't. Therefore, if change is increasing, 
its rate of change, you better increase as well. And that's often what we find. A lot of these businesses have been managing perfectly fine. They had been managing fine, but the rate of change accelerated and they didn't accelerate their ability to traverse it. And then one day they get caught. They get, uh, they get caught, uh, caught unaware. And how are you finding for yourself personally? Um, I mean, you were running a substantive business at a young age. Uh, and yes, you obviously had some challenges and some frustrations. Now moving into more of the advisory space rather than the do-it-yourself space. How how um, how's that been for you at a sort of a personal level in terms of your own career? Yeah, great great question. Look, the first year or so, I will admit, was a challenge because um, you were just so used to. You know, just being able to get in. And whilst I don't have grandkids, where I'm at now, it's a bit like having grandkids with clients. I get to turn up, I get to play with them, I get to do all the do all the bits and pieces and really help them. But I say, thank you very much. There's your child. I'm, and, and for me, just where I am in my life cycle at the moment, my daughter's one. I've got another one on the way. Uh... I've I've made a conscious decision to to um, yeah be <laughs> be around and have flexibility. I've got a property out west that we go out to, and so I, I learnt I just learned to modify some of my behaviour. Now, are there some points in time, especially with some things that you wish that you were sort of back on the horse? Yeah, there are some fleeting moments. But then you think about the consequence and the sacrifice. And whilst I will probably get back there when the kids are, are older and whatever else at this point in time, my value to the universe is helping other people implement this, uh, this stuff. And I've learned to learn to behave properly. <laughs> and, um, and tell us about this other side of you, you know, being an investor and uh, being involved in investor groups and so on. Um, how is the 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 role of the investor and and the kind of opportunities you're seeing changed um, over recent times? Yeah, I sort of I play two kind of roles out there. One is I work with people doing due diligence on potential deals because so often due diligence normally is like um, <clears throat> financial market all of that stuff. But very rarely is there any cultural climactic kind of stuff because it's, it's, it's nebulous, right? Mm -hmm. But Adesis has some systemic stuff where I can give you an answer exactly on what the culture is compared to your uh, culture and what are some of the integration challenges that are going to occur and how to handle it. Right. So that's, that's one aspect. Then, then as a subset of that, also when money goes into these investments, the second you put that money in, the world's going to change. And so it's not, it, it, when, you, when you invest in these companies, it's not whether they've got a good product or whatever else is, is this team of people going to manage this change loop? Mm -hmm. If they are, you will get, you will get a return. Mm -hmm. If they don't, you will not. It doesn't matter how much money you give them, how good their product is if you don't help them manage that change loop. And so what I then do is then help, you know, post that money going in implement based on where they are in that where they are in their life cycle mm -hmm. uh, and so with some of the the ones that I'm personally involved in 
yes, I, I put money in, but I run, as an example, once a month, those problem and opportunity identification systems. We call it the Participative Organisational Council. Um, and where, where we effectively help that entrepreneur and founder proactively deal with all the stuff rather than waiting for it to go, to go bang. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, it's, quite, it's quite rewarding. So, sorry, John, it, um, that's post them being acquired that you'd run this monthly... Correct. Post the... Well, not even acquired, like even with a small shareholding, I'll still... Uh, when, when I put money in or with some people that I work with, one of the criteria is um, we put money in and we will help you with this stuff. Right. And so during due diligence, they learn about this stuff. Um, and to be honest, most early stage, fa- early stage founders are excited by some of the concepts that I've, I've discussed, especially when I give them some of the case studies. So I very rarely get any, any pushback. And if we do get pushback on some of these ideas, they're not a backable founder. Right. Yeah, I understand that. And I can appreciate why they would probably be excited because they want their business to succeed. It is their child, your grandchild, right? It is their child. So, um, yeah. uh, And I get to walk around like the ghost of Christmas past saying, if you screw this up in this manner, this is what will happen. I can give them actual examples of, look, this is where we got success. Right. In hindsight, because of these ingredients. And when I work with some of these early stage founders, even the investing, I sort of, there's sometimes consulting, there's sometimes mentoring, and there's sometimes coaching. Mm-hmm. So consulting for some of these ones is to say, hey, you need to do this. So with like setting up the decision making and prioritization. Yeah. But then there's mentoring, which is, hey, in my previous life, this is what happened and I'm, you know, let's have a chat about this. And then there's coaching, which is, I don't know, what do you you think you should do? So you traverse those three quite regularly when you're you're active with an early stage investment. And it's interesting because there's a lot of confusion between the difference of coaching, consulting and mentoring, Um, but uh, you can straddle all three. And so if people are keen to you know, understand more about what you do and how you can potentially assist them, what's the best way for them to engage with you? Uh, well, my email is very simply don at adesis.com.au, A-D-I-Z-E-S.com.au. There's a YouTube channel, the Adesis YouTube channel, and there's a website, adesis.com.au, where I put posts and blogs and you can do a life cycle test survey on there to see you know where you are in the life cycle um and get members of your management team to do it because it's always interesting to see if you are aligned or not that's often a good conversation uh i'm on linkedin i'm on twitter i'm uh yeah happy to have a chat at any point all right well uh, we'll make sure we put notes yeah to all those links in the show notes and uh, so before we wrap it up don uh you mentioned you've got a uh a very young family and you've got a property. So I imagine that uh, uh, gives you plenty to do uh, outside of work. But if you were to look to the future, perhaps, um, you know, five years from now, what would you like to see have unfolded in your own career by then? It's a good good question. I mean, I'd I'd like to have a portfolio of of investee companies where that are adopting these things. I'm, I'm putting a bit more effort into some sort of um, board, uh, non-exec kind of 
aspects to help permeate some of these ideas from from that and then just have a a great client base of people that are aligned to these ideas are getting a lot of value and that we can have uh, we can have a lot of fun that uh, that's that's all that's all I ask <laughs> <laughs> well look, um, we could have uh, spent hours talking about this but it's a great sort of taster as to what you do and uh, perhaps we'll uh, have to have a uh, a mark two podcast uh, and and drill down on some of these things in more detail but i really appreciate your time thanks very much and have a fantastic afternoon thank you richard thank you for having me it's a pleasure. thank you for listening to the arate podcast with richard tricks we frequently feature guests from organizations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organization's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email at arateexecutive.com.au. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.